Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs of the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. This is the first program of the season and we're happy to have you with us. Tonight's topic is pursuing racial justice. As we all know, the United States is undergoing a period of reckoning over race, not only a re-examination of our historical past, but a present-day challenge to what many perceive as institutional racism, injustice in policing and judicial systems, inequality of opportunity based on race and ethnicity, and a lack of diversity in our public institutions, which serves to perpetuate inequities and minimize the claims of those who feel underrepresented. We have a lot to talk about, and we'll have three groups of guests discussing the pursuit of racial justice from different vantage points on tonight's program. Let me introduce my first guests. David Reif is the director and professor in the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. Liz Tovar is the UI's Interim Associate Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And Denise Martinez is Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the UI Carver College of Medicine. Welcome to all of you, and thank you for being with us. David, I'd like to start with you. You and colleagues throughout the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences have worked together to plan a series of lectures, performances, workshops, talks, and concerts that explore the difficult history of race in our country and the critical moment we find ourselves in today. Could you tell us more about this initiative, how it came together, and what you hope will come of it? Yeah, thank you very much, Joan, and thank you for inviting me on uh, this evening. Um, this is a really important topic, and we've spent a lot of time working on it over the past six or eight months, so I'm excited to, to share what we've been doing uh, with you and your audience. So um, the, the beginning of this story is in the spring when those extraordinary events happened around uh, Mr. Floyd and people began to have conversations across the units in the college about what they might do in response to these events. Um, the same was true in the journalism school, and it led me out to find out what other people across the college were doing. And sure enough, there were places where we could collaborate, uh, where we could build on what one another was doing, uh, where we could not get in one another's way. Uh, sometimes that happens in a big college like ours. And so as we began to talk about um, the opportunity here, we decided that instead of holding individual events or series of events across units, which is often what happens in the college, what we would do instead is uh, create um, a holistic set of events for the college itself. And it took a while for us to hone in on the actual subject of these conversations. Uh, we began where faculty often begin, which is we wanted to um, give our expertise to others. We wanted to tell everyone else what we knew. And so we were going to come before audiences and tell people about the history of racism, about the uh, racial injustice in the media industries, as an example from my world, et cetera. We quickly decided that that wasn't the right thing to do at this point that what we needed in our college and on our campus is more introspection um, and more change at the local level. And so we began to focus on a series of events related to the University of Iowa as an historically white institution, uh, which it is. Um, it's an historically white institution that has consequences uh, for its past and for its present um, and for its future. And what does that mean for us today? So we decided to hold a series of events around um, interrogating, investigating the university's um, 
history and its present moment as a white institution, what we could learn um, from these conversations. And then most importantly, uh, we think the last step in that process, what can we do right now to make things better? What can we do right now to think about health disparities in our region, the University of Iowa being a major regional medical hub, what can we do right now to help with those issues as one example? Mm -hmm. So um, that's what we decided to do. It ultimately involved um, over 25 to 30 of the units in conversations around these issues. Um, and the events are ongoing um, as, as I speak. Mm -hmm. Was it a, an immediate uh, engagement that happened with uh, people that you know across campus, various faculty members, not only in your own unit, but when, when word began to get out that, that this was, the hope was that this could be uh, coordinated and very um, involved process of, of people coming from their own perspectives, both as individuals and also as, as uh, faculty or staff, or I, I don't know if this also reaches students in terms of the design of the project, but uh, was, it th was there an immediate coming together? There, there, um, there absolutely was, and it does involve faculty, staff, and students. There are groups of units organized around different themes, and they're pulling in staff and students um, and, and student groups um, as it seems reasonable to do based upon that theme. Um, as I said at the beginning, when, when I started reaching out to folks across the college about um, these issues, um, it was clear that there was a lot of energy, a lot of activity, um, and all we needed was a little bit of organization and guidance of this energy. And so, um, yeah, the, the entire college has really gotten behind this, this initiative. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking from the uh, School of Journalism and Mass yep. Communication, what are yep. some of the activities that you're going to be involved in? Yeah, so we're working with um, Communication Studies and Cinema Arts, and our theme is Media Representations um, and Race. Um, you can't talk about race in this country without talking about mass media. Uh, mass media were invented in part to impart uh, images of race in this country from the 18th century uh, forward. Um, so it's a longstanding topic in our world. We wanted to localize it. And so what we decided to do was to focus on media representations of Iowa um, and, and race. I think that's really interesting. If you look at the history of media depictions of Iowa and Iowans, um, it has a very particular role um, in the American psychology. And so we thought to hold any, a lecture to start um, with an authority on um, representations of Midwesterners um, in the media. Um, and then we're going to hold a panel of alumni um, who, uh, from our units who have gone on to work in media industries, who will talk to us about the state of race relations in the media industries, the opportunities and challenges of working in these industries as someone from an historically disadvantaged background, and in particular, bringing it back home, how did Iowa prepare these folks and not um, to enter these industries, and what can we do better locally to help prepare um, our students to go and work in these industries. And then there's a last piece um, that will likely come next spring. Um, we want to engage current students, current Iowa students in telling their own stories 
about being about being Iowans. And we're not exactly sure what that's going to take, whether it's going what form that's going to take, whether it's going to be a class, whether it's going to be an extracurricular activity. Um, but there are many filmmakers, there are many writers, there are many photographers on our faculties. Our students love to tell their own story. Um, our, we know our uh, population in Iowa is becoming more diverse over time. And we'd like to hear their stories of what it means for them to have grown up in Iowa and to be Iowans. And so um, those are, that's a three-part series of events that we're going to be doing over the next, say, 12 to 18 months. Oh, that sounds terrific. And I will be uh, sharing with everybody the, the arts and the pursuit of racial justice um, web information as we continue through the program today, because in addition to what you're doing in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication and with Cinema Studies, um, there, there are a number of other um, parts of campus that are going to be engaged in discussions about um, policing and about the law, just many, many different parts of campus coming together with their own special focus on what it means to be white in America these days, but more particularly what it means to be a person of color and to, to um, reflect, as you say, on the history of race in our country. Thank you for starting us off, David. I think I'd like to turn next to Liz, uh, if I may. And um, Liz, you are associate interim associate vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion here at our university. And in that role, yours is a critical voice projecting the UI's values and promoting the kind of environment in which all faculty, staff, and students feel welcome and where equitable treatment and inclusivity would be core to a positive educational experience. Uh, could I just start by asking you the most basic question? Why are diversity, equity, and inclusion important here at the university? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Joan. And just a special thank you to international programs, uh, Joan, and everyone that you can't see right now, but everyone who is working behind the scenes to make sure that this event was made possible tonight. I believe you all are in your 12th year, and that's that's amazing. And I'm just able, I'm glad that we're able to get together, even in a virtual world, uh, to have this event. Uh, but to answer your question, um, I, I always start by asking why. I think that's a very important question. Why is diversity, equity, and inclusion so important uh, to us as a campus and critical really to the mission of, of higher education? And I think the first answer starts with preparing students for success as they navigate um, a more diverse workforce. And a workforce, mind you, that may look very different uh, from the communities in which uh, they were raised. Um, and therefore, I think it's really critical that we understand the views and needs of the people who we not only live around, but the people that we work around um, as well. Uh, the second reason why I think that this um, is critical to, to our mission uh, within higher education is really it comes down to our communities are more diverse um, th than they've ever been before. And in order to be you know, a better neighbor, um, in order for us to understand the complexities of the people who live and work within our communities, uh, we need to understand them better. I heard a statistic the other day that you know, in 2005, about 10% of Iowa high school graduates uh, were non-white. And it's projected that in 20, 35 that that will near to 40 percent um, and that makes it very highly probable that our institution is going to look and feel very different um, now um, as compared to them and then finally I really think that 
cross-cultural conversations are important now, now more than ever. Um, you know, over the past six months, I think we have taken a deep dive um, into understanding one another better. We still have a very long way to go, but I think that that is a skill set that every single person um, who's working on a college campus or earning um, a college degree that they'll need to have um, in order to communicate better with people, especially those who look very different from them. Um, and one thing that, that I've learned is that talking to people, especially those who look different from me and those people who challenge me um, are really the best resource and, and educational tool that a person can have. Um, the second part to this is really looking at um, clearly naming and understanding the challenges that we have um, as an institution and or as a community. And some of that starts with understanding our history, um, where we came from, where we are trying to go, and especially history within a predominant white community. And one of the things that really challenges or hinders us in making progress in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion work um, is really learning how to listen even if we dis disagree with someone. Um, and we really have to remind ourselves that there's a lot of gray area out there, that there's no one uh, right way or wrong way of doing things. And we have to feel comfortable in living in that gray area sometimes. And then we also have to be mindful of not allowing our conversations to stall um, or become non-existent for fear of retribution or a lack of interest on a topic. So um, those are just a few of the thoughts that I have for you. Mm -hmm. uh, terrific. Um, uh, what do you think are the greatest challenges we have right now here on our campus? Um, we do know that there was recently an executive order issued by uh, President Trump, which was called the Executive Order on Combating Race and Sex Stereotyping. Uh, one portion of that order states, and I quote, research suggests that blame-focused diversity training reinforces biases and decreases opportunities for minorities. And the or order further says the participation of contractors, employees in training that promotes race or st sex stereotyping or scapegoating similarly undermines efficiency in federal contracting. Such requirements promote divisiveness in the workplace and distract from the pursuit of excellence and collaborative achievements in public administration. Uh, in response to that executive order, you issued a statement on behalf of the uh, UI declaring a two-week halt in trainings and workshops and similar activities held by UI entities for a sort of a reassessment of content related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, why was that the approach we took and what kind of content would be considered problematic? Absolutely. Well, I will tell you that this was certainly a, a time frame in which there was an incredible amount of what I felt was disruption, disruption to um, um, our, our policies, our practices, um, and really disruption to who we are as, as a campus and as a community. There's a great level of frustration um, amongst our campus community and, and, and myself um, in, included. And I think at the end of the day, when I sit back and I think about the executive order, I think about it in terms of um, you know, how this type of disruption, how we can 
take that um, as, as a negative um, and really and truly turn this into how can that help us change for, for the better. And one of the things that, that we really tried to do as a campus is take a deep dive into all of the vast programs that we have to offer um, as, as a campus, as a community, and really look at what are some of the best uh, you know, trainings that we have here on campus? How can those be offered uh, more widespread? Um, I think it's always healthy to continue to examine yourself, um, to examine you know, the types of trainings that you offer um, and the types of messages that you're trying to send to, to the community. And I think at the end of the day, we um, may be a little bit better off because we have a greater understanding for everything that is occurring on our campus in terms of a D, DEI perspective. Um, I also look at this in terms of, you know, honestly, you know, self-disruption, right? Um, I think that's a critical component for change and also for action um, because we can self-disrupt um, our mindset and also self-disrupt our kind of worldview in two critical ways. And one of those things is how do we become a champion for people? How do we adopt a mindset or a framework um, that supports people and groups regardless of who they are or, or what they look like. What I appreciate about especially the past six months is the level of engagement, especially student engagement on our campus and their level of attention to social justice initiatives. Um, I, When I look at the individuals who are protesting on, on our campus, I didn't see one group or, or, or two different types of groups. I saw people from all different backgrounds. Um, and so everyone was, was kind of involved and, and, and kind of supporting one another, regardless of who they are or, or where they come from. And so I like having that type of mindset. Um, and I think we as a community, especially as one of the outcomes from the executive order, will come out a community that is much stronger at the end of the day. Um, the other thing that I, I will mention is this whole notion of kind of empowering your network and bringing others to the table who not only think differently from you, who look differently from you, but what can they add to the conversation? Um, and empowering that network really starts not only at work, uh, but it also starts at your home and, and around the dinner table, right? Um, and really recognizing what are the limitations to, to my network uh, that may present a barrier for um, those around me. For example, if I only have a network of people who look exactly like me, um, I may be more likely to hire that person uh, to come and work for, work for me um, or bring them in, in, into my, my work environment. That's not a good mindset. We need to learn how to expand our network, especially in, in the workplace. Um, and you know, your personal and professional network that you have, they're all intertwined with one another. And I think sometimes that gets lost. Um, so I look at it as, okay, how do I expand not only my, my, my work um, network, uh, but also how can I look at that from a personal perspective as well? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, um, I, and I think I want to lead off uh, this next question to Denise, uh, Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, also a faculty member and clinician in the Department of Family Medicine, uh, Denise Martinez. Um, you, I know, have been active for quite a long time in terms of um, finding those, those cohorts on campus, people you work with, people who may be students here on campus who uh, identify with certain communities uh, that are not the 
majority white community in Iowa. As I understand it, you spearheaded the creation of the Latino Medical Student Association and the Minority Association of Pre-Health Students. Um, what needs do these kinds of groups address, do you think, in your field? Yeah, no, absolutely. So in healthcare, um, diversity, equity, inclusion is literally life and death, right? So we know that health disparities are real. They're often system driven, meaning that people's attitudes, beliefs, conscious or unconscious affects the care that we give. And we see it in different spaces. So for example, we know, for example, that um, black women are six times more likely to die in childbirth in the state of Iowa and the national average is three times. Um, or we know that if you happen to be a racial ethnic minority or Latino, and you go to the emergency uh, the emergency room and have um, signs and symptoms of having a heart attack, you're less likely to be treated for a heart attack. And the data about this is absolutely clear. And so we know that we have to make um, healthcare more diverse, like it's critical. Um, there's a lot of data that shows race concordant care, ethnicity concordant care, um, as well as language concordant care makes a difference on outcomes and how patients are actually treated by the system. We also know that we have to educate those of uh, majority backgrounds and, and other backgrounds um, uh, of the role of um, that, you know, potentially bias can play or unconscious bias and how that affects patient care. So all of those um, organizations like LMSA or MAPS or, you know, these things that we have done to create better pipelines um, of uh, diversity for medicine is, is certainly critical. Well, you, you touched on this just a moment ago. I, I understand you're also a champion of cultural competency education in University of Iowa Healthcare. And this cultural competency means what? Yeah, so we, you know, I, I love, I like the term cultural competency, and I think a lot of fo folks might also have uh, had heard of the term cultural humility. I like that a little bit more just because sometimes cultural competency makes us feel like we've arrived, like we, we have become competent versus cultural humility, you know, knowing that all of us are a work in progress. And as we are working with people of all different types of backgrounds, walks in life, walks of life and identities that we continuously need to learn, um, how to best reach the needs of different of different people um, and that we are not all the same and um, but we also need to recognize uh, that we need to do a better job in treating folks um, because health disparities show that we don't do a great job about that. Mm -hmm. And I suppose uh, this is becoming even more apparent even here in Iowa as the, the COVID crisis continues. We certainly hear this nationally that people of color uh, are affected uh, more seriously very often by COVID than um, people who, who may be in the majority population. And uh, are you seeing that also here at, at the University of Iowa? Yeah, no, very much so. So COVID has really continued to show, like just put this huge spotlight that health disparities are, are a real thing. And, and, um, and particularly here in Iowa, we've seen this uh, very strongly with our Latinx community, especially initially um, because of um, of uh, some of the uh, spaces that people who have led at Nax identity work, um, and in our case in agriculture, as well as some of the plants, a lot of the, all of our, or not all, but a lot of our initial um, ad, uh, admissions to the hospital um, show were very uh, Latinx uh, um, heavy, which was really, really unfortunate. We've also seen greater, significantly greater levels of morbidity and mortality with people with Black identity. And so um, this continues to show a light um, that this, these are real problems. And um, certainly we need to, as a healthcare community, continue to talk about this and figure out how we can do better.
Yeah, yeah. Are there additional initiatives that you think would be important to uh, UI Healthcare's DEI goals, things that you would love to see happen, but maybe haven't quite uh, come together yet? Yeah, so I think right now, you know, one of the things that we are doing, too, is really doing a lot of listening. So initially, you know, in the past six months, we have gone around and listened to so many people, especially with underrepresented minority and especially Black identity, um, trying to hear, you know, what are your experiences? What have you seen? What do you feel? And what can we do better? Um, and uh, some of those things um, we are uh, putting great effort into um, in thinking about how are we going to um, create a more um, diverse system? How can we create better education for all of those who are in our system? So making sure that we're giving appropriate health care to those of underrepresented backgrounds um, and how, um, how we can just make health care more equitable going forward. So um, there's a lot of energy into this right now and it's an important thing. And again, especially with coronavirus, it's, it's literally life and death. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And as we've seen uh, this summer in the past many years, uh, these issues are life and death for a lot of people in America. And uh, we started off talking about uh, the George Floyd death murder and, um, and what it spurred in the, the larger consciousness of Americans, white Americans, people of color. Uh, I think everybody was, was very deeply affected by that. And when we talk about the uh, University of Iowa, an institution I love, went to school here, worked here my whole life, very, very fine institution with history of being a majority white institution. How does institutional racism fit into that picture? Um, maybe ask either Liz or, or David to say, what do we mean by a term like institutional racism? So, you know, I think that that is a, it's an interesting, interesting question. Um, and, um, you know, one that I can't necessarily tell you that I, I have the answer to. And I don't know if anyone has the answer to that, to be quite honest with you. Um, but the one thing that I, that I can tell you is um, we have to sit back and we have to learn how to say, is progress really being made on, on our campus? And what does that progress mean? How is it measured? Um, because m so much of the time, we as a community will sit back and say, we haven't made any progress. And really what it comes down to is number one, maybe we haven't communicated effectively about the type of progress that we have been making, how it has changed us um, as a community and how we are different now than we have been in the past. Mm -hmm. David, did you wanna add anything? Um, you know, I think it, in, in, in my experience, it's helpful to talk about particular examples of situations when you're talking about these very big global terms um, that can have multiple meanings and we're not sure that we're all meaning the same thing when we use these terms it's helpful to have very specific examples and and so when i've been having these conversations over the last six to eight months i really wanted to talk about specific instances of what happened when and what you learn is that there's a very complicated interaction between policies practices and processes that no one in particular intended, but that have that can have a result that is unequitable. Um, I'll give you one example, just uh, not from uh, the area of race, but from the area of gender. We all know that there's a wage gap uh, among faculty uh, between men and women on campus. Um, that's a long standing issue. Um, you can try out the statistics. It's been around for a very long time. Um, I recently heard an example of an institutional reason for why that happens. Um, and it comes about through 
almost innocuous um, reasons. So when a faculty member goes out in search of another job at another institution, sometimes their home institution will match or exceed the offer in terms of salary that's been offered by the other institution. Um, and that's one way in which, and it's actually one of the few ways in which faculty these days can enhance their salary. Well, it turns out that men are much more likely to go out in search of jobs in other institutions. And you ask, well, why is that? Well, in part, it's because women have many more family responsibilities and they're not in a position to be able to uproot their family and move just anywhere. And so you can see how a dynamic on campus interacts with a dynamic in the private life to help to produce a situation in which men and women are paid inequitably on campus. Mm -hmm. It's these kinds of interactions that we have to get at. Um, we have to raise to visibility. We have to have a conversation about, um, and we have to decide among ourselves, um, how are we going to respond to these kinds of interactions? What can we do in terms of our policies, practices, and processes to short circuit that process? Great. Uh, Denise, did you have any concluding comments you wanted to make? No, I just that these conversations are really critical and I'm, I'm happy to be here and I hope that uh, these conversations continue. Gosh, well, thank you all that this has uh, taken our, our first portion of the program right up to the end. And, and I'm so grateful for you all being here. David Reif, Liz Tovar, and Denise Martinez, thank you very, very much. And to all of you watching, please stay with us for the next segment of World Canvas when we will explore music from the margins. Thank you, everyone. Mm -hmm. Well, hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas. Tonight's topic is pursuing racial justice, and in this segment, we'll turn our attention to artistic expression, focusing on music from the margins. Joining me are Damani Phillips, Associate Professor of Jazz and African American Studies at the UI School of Music, William Jones, Director of Orchestral Studies and Visiting Emeritus Professor in the UI School of Music, and Mark Heidel, Director of Bands and Professor in the UI School of Music. Uh, welcome and thank you all for being with us tonight. Damani, I'd like to begin our conversation with you, if I may. You're one of the faculty leaders in the class DEI initiative that David Reif was just speaking about in the first segment. And you have worked with colleagues to create a couple of major events focused on racial justice that will be happening here on uh, the UI campus and shared virtually. One of them, a big one, in fact, is tomorrow. Uh, we'll talk about these specific events in a moment, but I would love it if you could give us some insight as to why you were so committed to participating in the Art and the Pursuit of Racial Justice initiative. Well, you know, um, we have conversations about these issues, these little oversights that happen in academic environments all the time. And um, that is certainly productive and useful in its own sense. But I'm also of the mind that uh, we should be doing whatever we can from what limited space or position we are in the, the, entire, uh, the entire dynamic that we're working with to try to produce tangible things that force folks to have conversations, those difficult conversations internally with themselves and reckon with the reality of things as they stand in the academy and how that may differ from what's happening outside the academy and more importantly, having to reconcile those incongruities within oneself. And so uh, a big part of my um, drive in terms of uh, trying to do what I can is to from what uh, from my 
perspective or my purview or my position in all of this, try to create things that are um, forcing or assisting with or uh, motivating this internal dialogue amongst all of us within ourselves and within our communities to start to truly grapple with the reality of the situation that we're wrestling with in 2020. Right. Um, as a Black artist and educator, your life experience is necessarily intertwined with the troubled racial history uh, of our country. And, you know, you work here at the University of Iowa, an institution where, in spite of our efforts to increase diversity, the population of faculty, staff, and students remains largely white. Um, but within music and the arts, um, um, people of color have been deeply and most importantly, involved in in creating works that that affect the larger culture, affect the, uh, you know the the thinking of people all over the world. You, as a teacher, bring the work of many of these groundbreaking artists to your students and audiences, sometimes for the first time. So you, you may be exposing people who've never seen the work or heard the work of certain musicians um, until they encountered you or a course you were teaching. Uh, and I imagine that's both a, a joy and a heavy responsibility. Yeah, it definitely, um, you know, being teaching in this environment comes with its share of, of added responsibility. But, you know, you know that when you walk in the door. And so you learn to come to grips with it and make do and more importantly, treat, you know, those responsibilities with the utmost respect. And in a, a roundabout way, that's actually one of the more uh, enjoyable parts of my job is that you end up being someone's, you know, introduction to many of these things. And it happens that a student will land in your class who one, has never spent any significant time interacting with persons of color and two, have never actually uh, engaged with you know, the artistic products of African-Americans either. So you know, the ability to kind of curate that, that initial introduction and kind of get them moving in the right direction and understanding the, you know, the breadth of what African-American culture is offering uh, on the art side of things um, is actually um, kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. No, I can imagine. Um, and so the concert that I mentioned that's going to be happening tomorrow is called the Collage Concert. Uh, tell us about this. It sounds tremendous. Yeah, the um, Arts Advancement Committee, uh, we were uh, kind of brainstorming ideas of things that we could do um, as an acknowledgement or as a means of diversifying the things that normally happen here on campus. Uh, and so within the School of Music, uh, we, I considered things that we hadn't been doing that we probably could do more of. And among those things uh, was a kind of highlighting of African-American composers and the contributions they've made to American music as a whole. Um, we once in a blue moon may get an isolated piece on a concert here or there, but uh, by and large, the, those contributions and those, the programming of those kinds of, um, of pieces are usually pretty small in number uh, compared to, you know, the pieces of, of composers from the European side of things. And so um, it was, it seemed like a good idea. And I approached my colleagues about it. And to their credit, um, they were, um, they were with it from literally from day one. And our director, uh, uh, Tammy Walker was uh, completely behind the idea. And it just so happened that after, you know, approaching my colleagues, uh, we were able to put this together and put together a pretty decent concert too. So um, I'm <laughs> happy to see that this all came together properly. 
Yeah. And, and of course, it's a challenging year because you are musicians. You're usually playing close together or, or you know, performing in, in close quarters. Uh, it's a little bit trickier this year, isn't it, while you're teaching? Yeah, just a little bit. But, you know, um, there's definitely some unique challenges at play in making sure that we are able to play. But at the same time, all people, all parties involved are able to remain safe. And I'll, I'll give credit to um, School of Music Administration for, you know, doing the, the work and making sure that we had hard facts on exactly what we could and couldn't do in our space while keeping everyone safe. But uh, more than anything else, you know, jazz is a practical music. And if we're not able to play it, our ability to help our students grow and improve is uh, severely uh, diminished. So, you know, uh, we're very happy to, you know, be, you know, one of a small handful of schools that are actually still able to play and able to do so since the beginning of the semester up to this point. So, yes, there are some challenges involved, but on the other hand, we're also counting our blessings because we actually are uh, able to engage in the very act of the thing that we are here to teach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you want to give us a little bit of a preview of some of the pieces that will be on the collage concert tomorrow? Well, I'll let my colleagues uh, do a little bit of introducing since they are at the okay. helm of some of these. But um, we have, uh, you know, some pieces from Duke Ellington, from Wayne Shorter. Um, so a variety of pieces from the jazz side of things, from the classical world, some pieces that you, even within the jazz uh, realm that we very rarely hear, we don't hear all that much. Mm -hmm. So apart from it being, you know, music produced by African-American composers of, you know, varying styles, it's, um, you know, unearthing these pieces that, you know, people don't get to hear very often. Mm -hmm. so not only are they, you know, it does it have a cultural significance, but it also has an oral significance in terms of raising our ears with some sounds that don't often find themselves on the programs of major ensembles, both within the academy or outside of it, for that matter. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And I want to give the website where people can find out uh, more about this concert and other events in this entire year-long project, uh, arts.uiowa.edu. So you can find more there and also in the School of Music website um, uh, about the collage concert. And also, if you want to give us a little taste of what the event you have planned for the spring uh, involves, uh, Face Truth, Face Self. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I had the idea of uh, taking some of the atrocities that have happened to African-Americans, which we've, you know, has kind of come to the very fore of our consciousness now with the George Floyd incident, uh, but taking some of those videos and pairing artists of different disciplines with the playing of those videos as a kind of live reaction to the imagery that's being displayed um, and kind of a fusing of, uh, you know, those unfortunate happenings with the way that art reflects and uh, mirrors, you know, the significant happenings in our culture and our society, um, but in a very real, very tangible way as a means of beyond raising awareness, but allowing us to have some of those difficult conversations about these pieces, about these, these incidents, without just staring at the video and, and closing our eyes because we don't like what we see. Mm -hmm. um, and more importantly, giving students uh, or the, the participants a chance to process the reality of those incidents in a way that uh, forces them to grow uh, very close in understanding the true depth and, and breadth of, you know, the, the issues 
uh, present in, the, in those incidents. And more importantly, understanding that this is while we may be talking about it pretty, uh, you know, pretty heavily right now, this is not something that's brand new. This is something that's literally centuries old. It's just now has a new manifestation and it's now on the tip of our tongues because of what we saw with the George Floyd incident. But this is something that is literally decades and decades and decades of, of incidents that have happened over the years. And with any hope, this allows us to one, take a special note of what's happened in these most recent years, but two, comprehend the fact that this is a this is a dynamic that is literally hundreds of years in the making and we just just now seeing it manifested in a new way in a new millennium mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah thank you um well I look forward to both of these concerts and the other events throughout the year of course once again for anybody who is interested in finding out a little bit more specific details about these various uh events arts.uiowa.edu. Uh, and I'll just move to you, uh, William Jones, if I, if I may. You have a long career here, not only at the University of Iowa, but as an internationally active orchestral conductor. Um, you are also a Black artist, professor, and colleague. And, you know, I imagine you faced racial barriers in your own career, and I suspect you've seen the struggles of other minority artists and professionals to get the recognition they deserve. Um, what problems or concerns do you have about how race figures into the orchestral music sphere? Well, thank you, Joan. Um, a lot of things have been changing in the past um, couple of decades uh, when it comes to inclusion um, in the orchestral world. Um, as we know, traditionally, uh, historically, I guess you could say, uh, orchestras were really made up of white men. Um, as a result, um, they had a, a certain feeling that it was beneath them to accept um, a woman or a minority on the podium telling them how to interpret the European masters of Mozart or Haydn or Beethoven. Regardless of that person's um, a musical talents and skills. Um, it manifested itself not only in orchestral things, but the opera world, in ballet. In fact, um, when Marian Anderson was 58 years old was when she was first invited to sing with the Metropolitan Opera. Um, she had been singing around the world, but not being invited here. Um, Dean Dixon, who was uh, a marvelous orchestra conductor, was not allowed to conduct in the United States. No orchestra would hire him, but he had a wonderful career in Sweden and in Germany, uh, his whole life, actually, um, there as, a, as, a, as an artist. Um, and we see that the only woman now that's with a major orchestra is Marn Alsop. Um, and that's still quite recent that a board of directors finally decided that a woman could lead an orchestra, a major orchestra. Things have changed to a certain extent in inclusion uh, in the orchestras because in the early 80s, auditions had to be behind the screen. Before that, anytime a minority or a woman walked on the stage, 
the committee, whether they meant to or not, already had a certain attitude about whether that person should belong or not belong. And the built-in bias, um, they may not, again, have intended it, but it was there. So women were not being included and minorities certainly weren't being included. Um, and when I say minorities, I really mean black. Um, you would find occasionally a Puerto Rican or someone from South America, not very many Asians at that point until basically in the 70s did Asians start coming into American organizations. So I think getting over that, that built-in bias on the part of the orchestra players themselves that were the committees doing the hiring or the board of directors that were there because they really had the money to support or they were part of society that put them in those particular, um, on those board offices, uh, really controlled everything. Um, we still don't have um, a black conductor with a major organ. In fact, we have very few guest conductors. Um, I had the opportunity to start playing with Minnesota Orchestra in 1972. Um, I was the first. Um, that's not a badge of honor, that's just a reality. Um, and then at this, um, in the same year, 72, 73, um, I was asked to conduct the orchestra because of one of our conductors um, had a family problem and had to leave. Um, and with that, then I was asked many times after that to. When I came to the University of Iowa in 1997, uh, there weren't many of us in the School of Music either. One. <laughs> um, and one of the odd things that uh, John Rapson, who was Damani's uh, predecessor, had uh, said to me, is, isn't it interesting that University of Iowa has a, a white man in charge of jazz and a black man in charge of the orchestra? <laughs> well, some things may change. <laughs> uh, yeah, and do you find that the, the music performed by, uh, or would you imagine that if there were uh, more Black, uh, uh, Latino, uh, or Latina um, conductors, uh, leaders of orchestras, would there be a different kind of repertoire that was performed? Uh, it, it's more than just the, the performers uh, themselves. It's also the, the direction the orchestra takes, the approach it takes to the wider possibilities in music. Certainly. Uh, you can, all you have to do is look at what Dudamel is doing with Los Angeles. Yeah and other orchestras when he goes around. We're finding a lot more of the South American composers being represented, um, not only Venezuelan, but throughout South America, because that's part of his upbringing and his knowledge. And he is now making uh, decisions on excellent music. Mm -hmm. um, part of our problem that we run into is that music that um, has been written in the 20th century, let's say, is all rental. Mm -hmm. Very difficult to, to 
actually get scores, look at it, make decisions about it. Uh, publishers will send you perusal scores that you can look through in helping to make the decision. Um, but you have to do a lot of research to find the composer and the repertoire that you might be able to do with your ensembles. Mm -hmm. um, and then in some instances, the music hasn't been published. People were not publishing women composers and black composers of classical music. Um, we just found out last decade, uh, Florence Price, one of the pieces was going to be performed tomorrow night. Um, when her house was, uh, she had passed away and when her house was being cleaned out, they found some boxes that in that box uh, or those boxes, lots of her compositions unpublished, just sitting there in manuscript. A few of her pieces had been published. Symphony number no. three, for instance, was performed back in 1932 hmm. with Frederick Stock and the Chicago Symphony. And she also was the, the piano uh, performer for her own piano concerto that Frederick Stock did. But that we can name these as sort of singular opportunities. Yeah. It wasn't the norm. Uh, since then, and now, uh, a lot of orchestras are beginning to play her music because it's not necessarily published yet, but you can can get it from her estate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other piece that we're doing that, that's being broadcast, George Walker's Lyric for Strings. Um, now, George Walker was one of those composers who's, um, he graduated from high school at 14, went to Oberlin. Hmm. Oberlin was one of the first schools in the United States to admit Blacks. He went to Oberlin at the age of 14, graduated at 18 as a pianist, was admitted to Curtis, studied with Rudolf Serkin, um, graduated from Curtis, and then began going on a European concert tour. He did play at, when he was at Curtis, he won the concerto competition and he played Rachmaninoff's third, uh, third piano concerto with uh, Eugene Armandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra hmm. one time out. Mm -hmm. Then he had concert tours throughout Europe that was uh, just fine as a, as a pianist. Um, and he came back to the United States, graduated from Eastman, he was the first Black to earn a PhD from Eastman. Um, still, his compositions were sort of put to the side. Yeah. He won a Pulitzer Prize with his uh, with a, a piece called Lilacs for soprano and orchestra. That was one of the big recognitions that he received. Um, and so we're doing uh, the piece that we're doing is called Lyric, and it's the second movement of his string quartet. Florence Price's piece that, we, that uh, will be programmed is the second movement of her string quartet, this Andante. Mm -hmm. Much like Samuel Barber's Adagio, that was the second movement of his string quartet. Mm -hmm. hmm. So the, the availability of repertoire 
from underrepresented composers um, mean, means basically you have to seek it. Now we have done a lot of, uh, when I, during my 22 years here, uh, prior to this year, uh, I would seek out works by women composers, Asian composers, Mexican, Latin American. Um, we've, we've programmed a great deal. We've even commissioned people like T.J. Anderson, who is a, one of our, our uh, graduates from, from here back in the early 70s, uh, to commission the work for us for our 100th anniversary. So, it, but you have to make much more of a concerted effort to find uh, underrepresented. Yeah. Mark, you're the director of bands and a professor also in the School of Music, and you've joined this arts collaborative around racial justice. Why did you get involved? Thank you, Joan. Thank you for having me on this evening. Um, this presented such a, a great opportunity, not only for our, this, the School of Music, but our, our students. And I, I think, um, as Damani was describing, I, I think there was a bit of a national awakening this uh, with the tragic events from this summer. And I think uh, that is beginning to, to challenge how conductors, performers, musicians are going to consider long-held values and assumptions. And I felt it was extremely important that we be involved in this, um, in the collage performance. The challenge, as Damani had already mentioned, is that we are, we are not a large ensemble this semester. We have chamber pieces or chamber groups of 15 or smaller. And so the idea was trying to select a work that would be appropriate for the concert that, that, that we could prepare in this, the circumstances that we're in. And we um, found a, a lovely work by Omar Thomas, who's a brilliant young African-American composer, uh, young, he's 36. Um, he um, has, has had a tremendous career and um, he composed um, a quartet and uh, so I, I purchased that this summer and um, we had a low brass quartet that actually practiced on our fourth floor terrace so they could be outside. They wouldn't have to use bell covers so they could rehearse in more of a normal setting. And so it, it's an important, um, it's an important responsibility as the Monty mentioned that we expose our students to this repertoire, to these composers and I thought this was a, a great opportunity for our program to become involved. And I appreciate the invitation. Well, in some communication we had before um, today's conversation, you mentioned that in addition to considering classical music through a new lens, uh, schools of music and music organizations have started to study and perform more popular musical styles, uh, rock and roll, hip hop, and obviously jazz, which is not a new form at all, but in any case, to expand our understanding and sort of um, um, enrich the culture of, of um, schools of music uh, and uh, the concert halls that many of us attend, uh, moving uh, not, not pushing aside the classical Eurocentric orientation, but, but certainly bringing a whole, a whole new range of material into uh, that forum. How is this good for, for our students? What does it help our students understand when you can, when you can sort of look at uh, various kinds of music and the culture they fit into it at various periods in our history? Oh my goodness. Um, first of all, I think it's a tremendously exciting time 
to be an artist, to be a musician. And as we're beginning to look forward, um, you, I do believe, as we're already seeing an evolution in how we approach concert recital programming and exposing our students to the music of diverse and often unfamiliar populations will inspire curiosity. It will inspire creativity and innovation. It gives us important insight into different cultures. Uh, I've, I've long held the belief that if you want to learn about a people, look at their art, listen to their music, read their literature, study their religion, study their philosophy. And so as musicians, we can offer that experience to our, our student, students from the concert hall and the, the recital hall. And it, it is so incredibly exciting to see classical music that's being influenced by popular styles, by jazz, by blues, by gospel. And, and I do believe that you will continue to see a slow evolution in how um, major organizations begin to program music. Well, and also, uh, even though these days most of us can't travel widely, we can certainly travel through the internet and we can find all kinds of music that, that um, we may not be able to experience in person just now, but it, it does open up your ears and your eyes to, to a much broader world of art than um, would have been the case without the internet in a time of COVID. Absolutely. I, again, I want to remind everybody about the uh, website where you can find more information about these many arts events that are uh, coming up, arts.uiowa.edu. And I do hope that everyone will have a chance to uh, take part uh, in uh, enjoy some of these uh, virtual events. We have come to the end of this segment, I'm sorry to say. So I do want to thank Damani Phillips very much. Uh, William Jones, thank you. And Mark Heidel, most interesting discussion. Thank you very much. Thank and, you, uh, Thank you. You bet. you bet. And I hope that all of you watching will stay with us. We have one more segment of our program where we'll be discussing uh, campus and community engagement focused on social justice. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the third segment of our World Canvas program, Pursuing Racial Justice. I'm Joan Kerr for UI International Programs, and I'm pleased to introduce three people who are deeply involved in public action to address racial and social justice concerns in our local area. There is purposeful, active engagement between the UI and Iowa City community, uh, and the hope is to bring people of diverse backgrounds and life experiences together around common goals and a shared vision of the future. My guests are Lois Arthur, Associate Professor in the UI Department of Theater Arts, Anne Duplan, author, poet, and founder of the Center for Afrofuturist Studies, and Marsha Bollinger, Neighborhood Outreach Coordinator for the City of Iowa City. And I say welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, Lois, if I may, I'd like to go to you first. Uh, here in International Programs, we've had the pleasure of working with you over many years on your public art project to bring the joy of Carnival to Iowa City. Um, you have led that project and connected members of the UI community with the Iowa City community around the art and uh, communal joy of this yearly event that in some ways has felt foreign to most people in middle America. Um, does your Carnival project reflect some of the same goals envisioned in the current social and racial justice movement? Thank you, Joan. Um, uh, I would think it, it, it was it was it's been an interesting 
um, idea. I was pulled up short, I think, by um, what was going on and that uh, in, in terms of, you know, one of the reasons why we didn't do a parade this year, one was about COVID, but on the other hand, it was also, and this was a question that went, I think, with um, carnival uh, celebrations around the globe, is, is where do we go from here now with a different view of the world? Um, that there were more important statements to be made and things to be said. Um, celebration is important. Sharing that celebration um, with other people is very important. But there are also so many um, other statements and other things to be said and um, people to engage in a different manner uh, that it's called into question, I think what happens with the carnival parade and where we go from here, frankly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, along with uh, your, your partners in this conversation, um, I would like to see how we can, what we can learn about the partnerships between our university, the city, the larger community, um, community arts organizations, obviously the Center for Afrofuturist Studies. What difference does it make when there are strong connections between the university and the community? Is that for me? Or yeah, that's for Lois. I, I'm sorry. Oh. Just Lois. <laughs> sorry. And you can answer too, Anne. <laughs> um, I think it's, it's vitally and critically important to have those connections. Uh, I think... You know, I, I'm not sure when, 50s, there was a sense of universities as ivory towers that were set and separate, plunked down in the middle of a community. And, you know, you you stepped onto the campus and it was sort of this, this um, hallelujah chorus or something uh, <laughs> kind of experience. Um, and I think, frankly, that was also part of the way people encountered art. Um, for a lot and a number of ways that's just changed over time and there should be more of, of a humanistic view I think which is making sure that there is diversity and inclusivity in any kinds of art mm -hmm. so for the University of Iowa that's always been a leader in the arts um, I came to Iowa because it's strong because of its strong um, arts programs and its support for artists uh, and so um, to have that continue, but also make ensure that the community is a vital partner in that process, mm -hmm. which means that is there is some kind of reciprocal relationship that's going on, that it isn't one way, that it's not the fact that we're just presenting art, um, that people come to see and they clap and then they leave that it becomes something else that has led to lots of different programs that are going on in all the arts organizations. Um, but it's also very much linked, I think, to what Ann set out to do with uh, the Center for Afrofuture Studies coming out of the program here and then going on. And so a number of other artists um, here in our community have that same trajectory. 
Well, uh, An, let's turn it over to you. Uh, so you are the founder and the director of the Center for Afrofuturist Studies. Um, tell us about the center and, and why did you bring the center to Iowa City? Sure, so I, I was in Iowa City because I uh, was part of the Iowa Writers Workshop program um, and I was getting my MFA in poetry and prior to moving out had been doing uh, independent curatorial projects with artists of color and, and a range of artists, um, including Icelandic artists, because I was in Iceland for a period of time, um, around ideas of Afrofuturism and Black futurity. And um, in knowing that I was moving to Iowa, wanted to find a more permanent home for some of the projects that I was working on. Um, and just in doing research uh, from a distance about Iowa City and the arts that were happening there, um, quickly came upon Public Space One, which is the home of the Center for Afrofuture Studies, um, and kind of reached out to John and Kalmia um, there with a sort of rudimentary idea for what the CAS program could be. Um, and I, I proposed that we I'm pretty sure I proposed that we buy a house together um, so that we could start this residency program. And they were interested in talking more to me, which says a lot about John and Kalmia. Um, and when I moved to Iowa City, finally, we kind of got started talking about how we could come to make this residency program happen, actually. Um, and so 2016, I believe, was the first year that we had artists come out and we had seven artists in residence throughout the course of the year who did um, use studio space at Public Space One and did a series of adult and youth programs. Um, and the youth programs were geared towards low income youth of color um, in Iowa City. We worked a lot with Dream City and uh, Broadway Neighborhood Center and G World during that time. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of how the the cast came to be, and I'm in Brooklyn at the moment. This I live in Brooklyn now, um, and so uh, when I think of community engagement, I think not only of kind of local community engagement that we do, but also engagement that I get to facilitate uh, between New York and Iowa City. And we've had a number of artists who I've come to know in New York, who you know we've we've invited to come out to Iowa City. And so I think we're starting to build bridges um, across the Midwest and, and between um, the East Coast and the Midwest. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so why did you feel it was important to, to create this, this center on the future of, of uh, you know, African-American people, um, uh, people, minority uh, cultures in this, in this very, you, be, you can be quite frank about it, it's a very, largely white uh, state. And Iowa City, like many university communities, um, has a, a more diverse um, um, ebb and flow. But uh, nonetheless, one might imagine that your center could have been in Brooklyn, your center could have been in Los Angeles. What, what was it that made Iowa City or Iowa uh, important to that project? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, I should say we, we think about Blackness in a really global way and um, I was born in Haiti and so there's also the 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 futurity of kind of immigrants in the United States and and um, it's important it's always been important to me to include those narratives when we talk about um, racial justice uh, and kind of 
-hmm. not just staying within a black American or African American lens um, mm -hmm. when we talk about these things. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, Iowa City, Iowa, they're largely white places. Um, and I often think that actually those are the best places to talk about um, an idea like black futurity um, because it's it's sort of where where it's needed the most, where it makes the most sense, where it's most dire, where there's a sense of urgency to the work. Um, there's a lot of racial justice work that happens in Brooklyn and, and I also work at another arts organization called Recess that works um, primarily with artists who, who think about social and community engagement. Um, but for me, the, the hard work is in kind of establishing these roots some, in places where they may not exist already. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been so rewarding to see over the course of five years that our audiences are so diverse and we, you know, and it, and it's kind of funny because you'll look out at our audience and then look out onto the street and you're like, something happened <laughs> between, there's sort of like a transformation that happens. Um, but, you know, I think we often have audiences that are maybe 60% white and 40% other races. And that's, I mean, that doesn't even happen in New York, you know, like that's um, really meaningful. So I, I think if you build it, they will come. That sort of mentality <laughs> has been, um, maybe explains why Iowa has not only made sense in the beginning, but continues to make sense mm -hmm. as, a, as a place to do the work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Marsha, it's a good time to bring you in, I think. Uh, so you are the Neighborhood Outreach Coordinator for Iowa City, and I know that's a big job. There are more parts to it uh, than just the uh, coordinator role for Neighborhood Outreach. But um, tell us a little bit about what you do on behalf of the city of Iowa City. Um, neighborhood Outreach is actually one of my positions. I uh, um, also coordinate the public art program, which is probably as much in line, but a, but a nice blending of roles um, and how I came to know Lois as well as on. Um, but um, working with neighborhoods and, and as I'm listening to um, everybody talk about their experience within Iowa City, it's very obvious and, and I've seen it because I have been um, uh, an employee of the city of Iowa City and lived in this community for almost 30 years. So I, I have seen um, the transition um, as other populations move in. I've also seen um, the transition of neighborhoods um, and you know the the reaction of uh, the people that have lived here you know as long as I have to um, what some might feel to be um, something they're not they're not uh, familiar with um, and you know just going through you know those kind of transitions mm -hmm. um, as part of the public art program. Um, we've also had the opportunity to work with um, the neighborhoods uh, it, it, all over the community in terms of getting the arts um, out to to them um, as also um, and, and to provide the exposure for um, particularly the youth to experience various art projects and um, uh, events, um, programming. Lois and I worked on a joint project with the Our Town Grant a few years ago. Um, and she was, uh, she worked with um, 
residents of the South District Neighborhood Association uh, and their families in terms of getting um, art programming out, out there. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, but. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Um, but and uh, maybe you can fill us in a little bit on the sort of the strategic direction that the city is taking in terms of expanding public art. I understand that the goal mm -hmm. is to make sure that that public art is in all the districts of Iowa City. Um, yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, we have just recently, within the last two years, gone through a pretty extensive strategic planning process for the public art program, and that was a consequence of um, the city council being approached uh, to uh, consider funding the, pro the program with uh, a much more substantial um, budget amount every year. Um, unfortunately, public art can tend to be um, one of those first items that are looked at with scrutiny when it comes down to um, reducing the city's budget. Um, it's not considered um, necessary by, by some. Um, so we've kind of suffered that ebb and flow over the last 20 years since the program's been around in terms of um, trying to do what we can um, with the budget that we have available, which we don't know from year to year. Um, but the city council within the last two years, I think is a, has provided that support um, to the public art advisory committee, who's the, the, the public um, citizen board that oversees the public art program um, that made them feel much more comfortable in terms of investing time in a strategic plan that would outline for the city council and for the for the public um, how it is that we can um, achieve some more comprehensive goals um, with the establishing public art through Iowa City and providing um, providing those funds. Um, and one of the major um, emphases that we found, we did a, a community survey prior to starting the uh, strategic plan because we wanted to hear what the, the people in the community thought um, and what they felt public art was, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, how they wanted to see it um, expanded. And um, one of the things we saw was um, that they wanted to see more art, um, not just visual arts, but performance arts, music, theater, that type of thing um, made available to the neighborhoods outside of the downtown. We have a very vibrant cultural um, downtown area, um, but getting those opportunities out, particularly to neighborhoods that wouldn't necessarily, um, those residents wouldn't take the time to, to come downtown or wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable in doing that. Um, so we're looking very closely at ways that we can expand that. Um, one of the ways that we've seen it really take off um, is providing more funding for a matching fund program we have. And that has really seen an uptick in interest by, we, we focus on local artists um, and organizations to provide um, those art opportunities, but we've seen it, we've seen it really take off. And for the most part, um, many of those projects are occurring out in the community, um, or maybe they are a portable type um, experience that can be downtown, but also taken out to some of the neighborhood parks. Um, so it's um yeah it's it's been a really interesting experience, and I think what we've ended up with is, is a game plan that I think is going to come up with some really exciting, um, exciting opportunities in the next few years. Mm. 
Well, one uh, uh, very big project, I think incredibly interesting project is the Black Lives Matter mural uh, that will be coming to life in the downtown area. And as I understand it, part of the thinking behind having this very expressive and important mural in the central part of town was, was to make it clear to all of us who engage in, in downtown life in one way or another that we do have a diverse community and there are people of many different backgrounds and, and uh, you know, who can all be seen as having, having a, playing an important role in our community life. I don't know who wants to take the lead in talking about the Black Lives Matter mural, but maybe I'll just go to you first, Lois, and you can give us an idea of what the point of the mural is. And uh, as I understand it, some students will be working on this mural. Certainly. So this is a project that uh, Marsha actually approached me about, oh. um, helping to plan out uh, this this summer. I think we were all looking at the Black Lives Matter murals that were happening on the streets, um, literally painted on the streets as well as in other places. Um, and, uh, you know, the common theme was we should do that uh, in Iowa City. What would that be like? And so we started there, but the um, the idea and the project continues to evolve uh, and um, folks might have seen an opinion piece um, that was recently written uh, in the uh, Press Citizen discussing the issues around the mural as well as for those of us that are creating this mural, um, some thoughts uh, about working in community and presenting a mural. It was always the case that um, everyone involved and I approached Public Space One and uh, the Center for Afrofuturist Studies to start to talk about this and then also figure out what exactly we wanted to do. And there, there are artists who are currently or in the past were affiliated with Public Space One that are designing the images for the mural and then they will be implemented by other people in the community, um, community members and also um, mural artists. And so we had an idea, um, we got caught up in a rush of wanting to do something and respond in the moment and went up against um, what we all kind of agreed to was that we didn't want to create something that would be seen as an endpoint. Yeah. That, oh, a mural is, is put in Iowa City. And so that reflects the diversity of the city. Well, that's, <laughs> that is, that's an endpoint, that's a stop. Um, and that uh, becomes highly problematic, especially around the issues of um, Black lives matter. Um, so there was a point where we stopped. And so originally the thought was that the mural uh, would be finished by October. Now it will be finished by June of 2021, which allows us more time to reflect, to think, to talk, to involve community, uh, and to make this more than just this one idea. Uh, 
also in that process, that rush to get something done. Uh, people who needed to be involved were not involved. Um, uh, representations that went out, um, articles that were, were done about the artists, uh, misquoted them. There was wrong information that was getting out. Uh, community members felt that, oh, here it goes again, we're getting run over, or this has been taken out of our hands and something is being said that we're not a part of. So the extending this, this time for this mural has allowed us to really rethink it. But even in that process, I don't think we're done. <laughs> I think it's ever evolving as to what this mural will be and um, how it will come about. So definitely stay tuned. Mm -hmm. But also we are actually even coming to the point of rethinking the idea of it being a Black Lives Matter mural. Is that the best thing to do and say in, in this time? Yes, it's very important, but in terms of reflecting Iowa City, is that the best thing? And so that's an ongoing question as well with it. The, um, the catalyst was certainly Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd this summer and all of the other issues that were happening. But we, I think that's also related to not fixing it in time and saying, oh, this was just then. Uh, and that somehow uh, now, you know, we have a more enlightened view of things or whatever. Uh, and so that's also what's behind the way this is evolving as a project, mm -hmm. which is actually what it should be for a community engagement project or a creative placemaking project. That um, it is ongoing, it is has a broader focus, that um, it looks at... Um, social justice, but also economic justice uh, and lots of other different um, issues in Iowa City, who we are as a diverse community. Are those diverse com um, voices being heard? How can we be better at that? Um, where, where are the problems? So what kind of conversations can the, this project sort of jumpstart or, or continue help to continue to make uh, Iowa City a better place to live. Uh, and Marsha and uh, Ann, um, I don't know if you'd like to add something in regard to this particular mural project or to um, the arts outreach throughout the community to not only black members of our community, but, but um, to other minority groups who, um, who are aware that they aren't they aren't part of the white majority culture, but perhaps there aren't uh, there isn't the same um, size population as the black population in Iowa City. Could they feel marginalized by something that concentrated mostly on the Black Lives Matter movement? Is is this the sort of discussion that's going on? I see you shaking that's, or nodding your head on. Well, I just think those are all great points, you know. And um, I was talking with a friend uh, who runs a project called MIPSTERS, which stands for 
Muslim hipsters around Muslim futurism, and we were talking about you know whether there's space within Afrofuturism for Muslim futurism and vice versa. You know, like do all of these futurisms. Um, we, we talk about kind of working in an intersectional way. And I think one of the main differences that we're seeing between the kind of social uprisings that, that are happening now and the ones that happened, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s are that uh, there's this increased emphasis upon um, intersectionality. Um, and so, you know, I went to a Black Trans Lives Matter uh, rally here in Brooklyn that I think it was something like 60,000 people were there. And this was during the pandemic. So wow. there's a real I really feel as though there I don't know any other historical moment when that many people gathered to to specifically um, call out the importance of black triangle. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And um, something that, that was coming up for me as I was listening to Lois was this um, quote by this anarchist scholar, Cindy Milstein, who says, um, it's not, a, and I'm paraphrasing, but it, it it's not a matter of ethics versus pragmatism, it's which informs the other. Um, and so there's this way that when you when you work in a community and, and wanna bring about a mural that represents that community, you're going to be thwarted, you're gonna to have to start over, you're gonna mess it up, people are gonna get angry, um, and things are gonna go of all part of the work of um, bringing about community projects in a relational way. That's how our relationships go, right? We, we right. piss each other off, this and that, right? And so um, for that to be part of the work, um, I think is not a sign that we've done anything wrong. It just actually means that we're headed in the right direction, that we're kind of allowing for relationships to inform the way that we work. Um, so that's that's kind of and so I'm I'm excited about this longer timeline for the mural because I think it will allow us some of that relationality, um, and and yeah, but but it's a good it's a good point that you raise about um, black life versus um, kind of other groups that are in Iowa City and and whether they'll feel included in a project like this. Sure, sure. Uh, Marcia, for concluding thoughts, is there anything you'd like to add? Um, as we're, we're talking about this mural and um, the fact that it is a public art project, um, there's just inherent challenges um, that don't necessarily line up real well with the project that we really want it to, to come, come, come from the people who are creating it. We, um, I, I think that was one reason we reached out to Lois because we wanted to, to, to keep it out of the realm of um, becoming too micromanaged um, within the committee, within the community, even the city council. Um, and But unfortunately, it is public funds. And so when we're um, in our reviewing, there's obviously processes established when the mural is being reviewed and there's conversations going on, they are all public. And um, it's really hard to get ahead of how a project is um, perceived by the press, um, you know, these are all things that, that um, I've experienced myself over the years. But um, with something like this, it 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 has been challenging to keep that in the context of the way we want this project to 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 come forth, um, to keep it um, 
keep it in, from the community, um, make it make it from um, the people that are um, putting their their hearts and souls into it. Yeah, wow. But that's also, the strong thing yeah. about it is that if it's a if it's is a public art program, and the public will be living with this art, then all, all commentary, all all um, input is part of the process of this this piece mm-hmm. and what this piece becomes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we all look forward to seeing it evolve and, and um, uh, come to fruition. And um, I want to thank you all so much for being with us this afternoon, Lois Arthur and Anduplan and Marsha Bollinger, as well as our earlier guests for uh, tonight's conversation on racial justice. Thanks to everyone who has watched the program with us today. I hope you can join us for the November 16th program at 5.30. That program will feature this year's International Impact and Global Student Award winners. And um, for international programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. Good night.